0: This is a daily recap featuring the RoomNow faculty from ACR 2022. In this recap, we'll discuss the highlights of the day. We hope you enjoy this as much as we did in making them. This is the daily recap from ACR 2022. The daily recap features the RoomNow faculty who present their highlight presentations
1: from the day. Hope you enjoy it. I'm David Liu from Melbourne, Australia, joining you from Philadelphia at ACR Convergence 2022. Uh, my name is not Jack Cush, but tonight I will be sharing this daily recap that we've got today on the last day of the first virtual, the first real meeting back in person, some virtual as well. And so I've got an all-star panel here of our room now um, reporters many, many years of experience here on this panel to talk through some of the exciting things that happened today. So I'm going to get them to introduce themselves. Catherine, may I start with you?
2: Sure. Thanks, David, for having me on. So Catherine Dow, uh, I'm here in Dallas. I was Jack Cush's old partner. In fact, I'm in his old office. And you can <laughs> actually see these books right there from the 1970s. Wow. Wow. <laughs> That's I have it. now assumed his office.
1: <laughs> office we're also used to seeing on the, uh, the um, Week in Review uh, um, videos. And, but now you're in the chair. Now you're in the chair. Uh, all right. Um, Julian, introduce yourself.
0: Thanks, David. And thanks to David and Jack and the team for having me. I'm Julian Segan. I'm from Melbourne, Australia. And this is my first time ever uh, attending the ACR in person in Philly.
3: Wonderful, wonderful. Richard Conway. Hi everyone, I'm Richard Conway from Dublin, Ireland and currently in Dublin, Ireland, uh, doing the ACR virtually uh, with all the joy that that entails. (laughs) Olga.
4: Hi, I'm Olga Petrina from Scarsdale Medical Group, practicing in New York metro area and I'm reporting from New York virtually as well. Wonderful, and orally.
5: Hi, everyone. I am from Glasgow, Scotland, and I'm um, delighted to be here in Philadelphia and to be here tonight with you for that panel.
1: Wonderful. All right. So let's start talking about some of the highlights from today. Catherine, tell us a little bit about what's caught your attention out on the conference floor today, virtual conference floor.
2: Absolutely. So, The glucocorticoid-induced osteoporosis prevention Mm -hmm. guidelines were actually presented. It's a little bit controversial because there's not a lot of data, as you can imagine, but all of us, we use cortical steroids for pretty much most of our rheumatic disease conditions that have an inflammatory component, from polymyalgia rheumatica to lupus to rheumatoid arthritis, name it. We are very liberal with steroids, but how do we prevent fractures, Right. So the guidelines are designed to talk about, you know, what to do, particularly in certain circumstances. Um, even at 2.5 milligrams a day, that can increase your risk for fracture, both vertebral as well as the hip fracture. You know, it's a no brainer. If it's an older person, higher risk for fracturing, sure, start them on therapy, bisphosphonates, denosumab, forteo or teriparatide. right? But what do you do in kids? What do you do in, preg- in somebody who wants to get pregnant? I mean, those are the the issues that the guidelines are trying to address. And And the other thing that I didn't realize, which some of your viewers may, is that if a patient is high risk and it's on cumulative dose of steroids, more than five grams in a year, okay, that's more five grams in a year, high risk or if they've been on like um, more than 10 milligrams a day for months on end and are at actually high risk. When you calculate their FRAC score, you have to multiply hip fracture risk by 1.2 and vertebral fracture or major osteoporosis factor risk by Mm 1.12. So you have to multiply up in order to see whether or not they meet threshold for fracture. So that's one thing from the guidelines. The second thing from the guidelines is that even though a patient has a bone density score of negative 2.5, you still need to calculate the Frax. I mean, I, I never did that. I mean, <laughs> do you? I was like, they have osteoporosis. Why would I calculate the Frax? Okay. There's a rationale behind this. It's so that you know what the probability in the next 10 years is that they will fracture, right? And then the third part of the guideline says that, so in younger patients, now these are like patients who are kids, 18 uh, or younger, they actually said if they're high, high risk for fracture or had a fracture, go ahead and treat them, treat them with the bisphosphonate. And that blew my mind. I was like, what's the data, right? Or in somebody who wants, who's like in their twenties, high risk, and they want to get pregnant in five years. Do we hold the bisphosphonate? Do we, what do we do? So the committee says that, you know, the best treatment would probably be risidronate because it has a short half-life. I mean, I don't know what you all think about these guidelines. Have you been incorporating any of these beforehand? You know, do you have concerns?
1: Well, let me ask the group, let's just put hands up as a show of, uh, you know, to, let's be honest here. So who thinks that the... Uh, they're perfect at treating steroid induced osteoporosis. Well, oh, well, Julian. <laughs> someone, someone
0: Definitely not.
1: That, I think. Um, who thinks that they would put more than 50% of the eligible patients, patients that the guidelines would suggest should be on some sort of pharmacotherapy, puts 50% that you put greater than 50% of those patients on pharmacotherapy in your everyday clinical practice?
2: I'm nervous. Yeah. I'm gonna be I'm gonna be nervous because I don't know and I haven't seen the data. I want to know the data because how long are we going to treat these patients for? They're so young. I mean, yes, they're at higher risk, but they're so young.
1: Absolutely. And well, I think we've got better and better data. I mean, we've seen data at this meeting looking at the impact of 2.5 milligrams a day on bone, on, on um bone density. And we know that the impact that we've seen previously on architecture, this is a really interesting space that we're trying to work our way through. And we're appreciating the increasing long-term impact of, well, the numbers of patients that reality is still on steroids when we're really honest with ourselves. We all think we don't do it, but we clearly do. Um, Anyone got any thoughts on these um, steroid-induced osteoporosis guidelines? Does it surprise anyone else?
3: I think it's... It almost reinforces some of what we've been doing a lot of the time. Like I, I've always, most of my patients who are on long-term steroids are older. They have PMR, GCA, ankavasculitis and they all tend to be older. And I've always tended to leave them on to treat them and to leave them on an anti-resorptive until they finish their steroids um, and then reassess their fracture risk after that. And in some ways I felt a little bit uncomfortable about doing that. Maybe I shouldn't be leaving them on so long, but I think it's great. It's always nice when the, the guidelines come out and they say that you've been doing the right thing all along. I, and I think the really challenging patients are those those younger ones. Um, but thankfully, I for whatever reason, I don't seem to have too many of those younger patients who are left on long-term steroids
0: I think the young females as well. And that's what a lot of us are concerned about, especially with bis- bisphosphonates. We know they get incorporated into bones. They can last for years, if not longer. And so, and we really don't know what effect they have on, um, on fetus development. And so I think that that's a big unanswered question. I don't know how to answer that question uh, with research, but, um, but uh, clearly it's an area of uncomfortableness for us.
1: Well, there's plenty to reflect on from those guidelines. I think it's really nice to get that kind of guidance um, from, from the college on all of that. Well, let's talk. I, I yes. would,
2: one one more thing, David. So I yes. would say that the experts did say when in doubt, consult a mineral metabolism expert. Mm. So I'll yeah. leave it with that.
1: Is that us? I don't know. Is that <laughs> that's, <us? laughs>
2: that's endocrinology and mineral metabolism, a whole different department. I don't know about what you have down under, but, Like for us, we do have a whole department who treat, you know, planal osteoporosis and mineral metabolism issues like hypophosphatasia and such.
0: Yeah, we do as well, like uh, chronic kidney disease associated uh, mineral bone disease as well. So we definitely ask them
1: for help. That is the way the world is going. That is the way the world is going. So Julian, tell us a little bit about what's caught your attention today. I think you've seen some interesting things in the plenaries.
0: Yeah, thanks, David. So um, the third plenary was today. And one thing that I thought was really cool and I'd I'd like to hear other people's opinions on it. Um, So um, there's Dr. Max Koenig from um, uh, Johns Hopkins uh, presented uh, something called uh, catcher therapy. So I think everyone's seen that CAR-T therapy has been really exciting at this meeting. Uh, The data uh, in uh, lupus patients Uh, that Georg Schett presented uh, is really interesting. Um, But clearly that wasn't good enough for uh, Dr. Koenig, uh, who said that uh, CAR-T therapy uh, looks like it just indiscriminately kills B cells. And we know that it does have potential issues, including the cytokine release syndrome, as well as potential prolonged immunosuppression. So what him and his lab have done is developed some specialised CAR-T cells, which uh, target Um, uh, certain cell lines within uh, B cells. So what they did uh, was they used uh, gene editing technology, CRISPR-Cas9, and uh, they got some um, cell markers from uh, beta-2 glycoprotein 1 uh, for people uh, from a patient that has antiphospholipid syndrome. And what they did was they engineered um, these CAR T cells to selectively attack these cells, and then they had some dummy cells Uh, And they show that it attacked and destroyed the uh, beta-2 glycoprotein-1 cells and left the other cells alone. So I think that that brings us uh, closer towards uh, truly targeted uh, treatments in our diseases. You know, we're falling behind hematology and oncology uh, in this regards and uh, really um, is exciting to be able to potentially have targeted therapies with less side effects.
1: Well, we only had CAR T uh, for a minute <laughs> before we started to go to this catcher, this after T cell receptors. So, do you think that this is all still in Max Koenig's lab, right? This is still, we haven't let this loose on patients, but it's all, awfully enticing, this really targeted therapy, precision strikes. So, is it just going to be antiphospholipid syndrome? Do you think this is going to work? And in, in antiphospholipid mm-hmm. syndrome, in clinical antiphospholipid syndrome, And then where else are we going to take this?
0: What's the future? So the caveat is I'm no expert in antiphospholipid syndrome. Um, The abstract does say that that the beta-2 glycoprotein-1 antibodies are pathogenic, Uh, in antiphospholipid syndrome. So I suspect uh, if it works, it will work uh, at least partially in this condition. Um, But I think clearly this has uh, applicability way beyond uh, antiphospholipid syndrome, uh, particularly where you can find uh, pathogenic uh, autoantibodies which are littered all across our diseases and outside of rheumatology as well. Mm, Big
1: calls, big calls here. It's gonna be interesting. So, okay, let's, let's do a poll of the crowd here again. Who thinks that um, this is going to be something that we'll see having a clinical impact in severe antiphospholipid syndrome, say CAPS? Any any takers?
2: I know it's going to make a big difference with lupus Mm -hmm. um, because of the abstracts that were presented at ULAR. I mean, for the first time, patients are considered cured you know, and so it's very interesting to see whether or not this kind of therapy lends itself to other autoimmune diseases. Now, obviously, you know, you just basically have to ablate the whole bone marrow. And so that puts the patient at higher risk for infection. Um, They could have the the reconstitution immune inflammatory response, kind of like what Julian was saying. And so it remains to be seen um, how it's going to work. And I, d- I don't know if I would invest in stocks yet, but it's something to keep an eye out for.
1: RT is certainly pretty expensive per patient. So uh, uh, the money's got to be going somewhere. And this, I'm, I'm guessing, is not going to be cheap either. Very interesting. All right. Julian, I think you just did briefly want to tell us a little bit about Denosumab as well. I think there's been a lot of tongues waving at this uh, abstract, getting us all excited.
0: Yeah, well, I think it gets us excited and unexcited in equal measure. Uh, so this is uh, an abstract in, uh, in the late-breaking session today, L05, looking at denosumab uh, on structural modification in erosive hand osteoarthritis. So just the, the top line summary is that um, this was 12-weekly rather than six-monthly uh, denosumab. Um, this actually significantly reduced structural progression uh, over the um, over the twenty four week period, as well as the ninety six sorry uh, uh, yeah four week period, as well as the ninety six week period, um, but really what was disappointing is that it made almost no difference in terms of pain, and it made almost no difference in terms of function. And so these are really important, you know, just because um, we improve structure, you know, that's only really a small part of this. And as my um, one of my supervisors used to say, you know, th- this is the so what factor. So uh, we we really need something that's going to improve our patients rather than just improve the X-rays.
1: Well, I mean, we don't have a whole lot that stops the structural damage <laughs> in Roosevelt. You're you're a hard man, Julian. Let me ask uh, Richard Nolga, and orally: Do you think that this is too good to believe? Are these results too dramatic in that short period of twenty-four week period of time, or do you think that this is real with both?
3: I think it's believable eh, that it's it's working that quickly i i find it hard to understand how it's not helping pain and function if it's helping structure and then where where is the pain coming from Um, and that's an interesting question why if you're reversing preventing structural damage are these patients still having the same amount of pain i'm also a bit uncomfortable with 12 weekly denosumab for a long-term condition that is scary <laughs> Um, yeah. we know that we know the 12 weekly is higher risk of osteonecrosis atypical fractures compared to to the six monthly absolutely well i i mean i'm obliged at this point to repeat
1: the Cush uh, recipe for erosive oa hand up erosive which is a pred 22 pred of 2.5 and um, some taping a bit of acetaminophen and, and general prayers i think right that, that pulls through most of the time, that's a, that's what it's got to beat right now. So, But what's...
2: if you remember, if yeah. you remember like, you know, DMAB was studied originally for rheumatoid arthritis and it never made approval for RA, even though it's, you know, halted rank ligands activity. And the reason why it never got approved for RA is because it didn't help with pain or swelling. I mean, mm. it helped to prevent the erosions, but you still got pain and swelling. And boy, it's going to be hard to convince a patient To take something that won't help their pain and swelling, because that's what most of my patients complain of with EOA. It's it's like the most hardest diagnosis to treat and it's frustrating.
1: So, what are we gonna have to do? Is this gonna be combo therapy? Is it gonna be a bit of Fred plus denosomab? Gonna give methotrexate plus plus, uh, denosomab? What are we doing?
2: I'm sending them to Nancy (laughs) Lane.
3: All right, I let's keep on moving. Let's keep
1: on moving. Um, Richard, tell me what you've got on the uh, the agenda today. A bit of ILD perhaps?
3: Yeah, a bit of ILD, one of my uh, favourite things. Uh, so uh, I've uh, abstract 2251 uh, from Matthew Baker from Stanford. Um, and RAILD, as we all know, it's it's relatively common, 8% of RA patients. Um, and it's a bad thing. Once you get RAILD, you're median survival is three years. And despite that, we have no good idea how to treat it. We have no randomized controlled trials in RA-ILD um, and no comparative trials really of any sort. So um, what they did in this study is they used the Optum database um, and they had 29,000 RA patients without ILD who were treated um, with um, biologic or TS Dmarts. And they were particularly looking at tofacitinib um, and how that um, might affect um, incident um, ILD. <clears throat> so the first thing they did was they calculated um, crude incident rates um, for the various uh, drugs. So per 1,000 patient years, they came out with values of 3.4 for adalimumab, with six for rituximab, with five for tocilizumab, 4.4 for abatacept, and 1.4 for tofacitinib. Um, and then they went on and they did uh, multiple corrections, adjustments for this, and came out with an adjusted hazard ratio of 0.31 for tofacitinib compared to adalimumab for the development of incident or a ild And they weren't satisfied with this, Um, So they went on and did another different analysis um, using a prevalent new user cohort uh, design with propensity score matching. When they did this, they came out with a very similar result. So they found an adjusted hazard ratio of 0.33 for tofacitinib compared to adalimab. So that's a really dramatic uh, finding, a 67% um, decrease in incident RA-ILD. With tofacitinib, Of course, there are a lot of limitations to this. This is a retrospective study. It was done in a a large database. um, So we don't have very detailed information on these patients, but it's encouraging. Um, We desperately need treatments that work in this condition and evidence that they work. Um, So I'm optimistic for the future based on this.
2: So Richard, can I ask you a quick question? So, based on that study, did they have any increased VTEs or cardiovascular event? Because you know, these patients with ILD they're at much higher risk for cardiopulmonary issues.
3: Well, that is, yeah, that's a very, very good point because RALD is more common in elderly patients and patients who have other comorbidities. Um, so, they may not be the ones you want to give a jack to. They didn't look at that, or they didn't tell us about it. Um, but it it would potentially be a concern. Having said that. If you're having this dramatic improvement in RAILD, which is a very, very bad thing, it might overcome those relatively small increases um, that we know happen uh, in uh, cardiovascular and VTE.
0: Has anyone here actually used typhosidinib in RAILD? Or has anyone had much experience treating it?
2: I use it for RA, and if they happen to have ILD, I, I don't necessarily have noticed whether or not there's been trends to improvement in their PFTs. But but specifically for RA ILD, I have not. I don't know if Olga or really or Richard or David has ever used it specifically for that indication.
4: I never had an opportunity to start a uh, jack inhibitor for for ILD RA specifically. But as you just mentioned, like if they happen to be on it for we just let the pulmonology, you know, add their treatment options and then see how they do, but really didn't get to observe uh, treatment response for long enough.
0: Yeah.
1: So Richard, do you believe these data? And I mean, if, if you do, then what's going on here? Why why is there a difference between the therapies? Because I think that's what we were all asking. And that's the
3: question we're all trying to tease out. Yeah, I, I don't know if I believe them. I, I can very conceivably believe that tofacitinib might be better for ILD than a TNF inhibitor. What, what confuses me most is the fact that rituximab and abadacept and tocilizumab look even worse than the TNF inhibitor potentially, which doesn't make sense to me. Um, so I don't trust it fully, um, but I think it gives a rationale to, to go on and do more detailed studies in this. Interesting.
1: So do you think it's residual confounding that hasn't been washed out yet or what's going on there? Is it because it doesn't I mean, those aren't those are the drugs that we would usually think about going to, aren't they? Thinking about Ritux
3: in a better sense. Absolutely. Um, I suppose there is. They are looking at incident mm. or ALD um, and we would go to those drugs to treat ALD, which which is where the evidence is. So there may be a differential there that they're not preventing it, but that they potentially are good in the treatment of it and we know we, the other thing we know is and we shouldn't forget the best evidence we have for any drug to prevent or aild is for metatrexate yeah yeah that's right we need to keep on yelling that from the rooftops don't we all right olga
1: what have you seen that's interesting today
4: Yes, yeah, so I really like the abstract 1669, uh, which talk about the safety and effectiveness of uh, DMARs and treatment of checkpoint inhibitor arthritis presented by Dr. Bass from HSS. I think it's a great and a very important topic because we see more and more patients with, with a cancer who are treated with checkpoint inhibitors and more and more of them end up in our clinic with the side effects or consequences of, of their treatment. So in this study, they, they took patients who had uh, symptoms of a checkpoint inhibitor arthritis. And uh, on average, the time from the initiation of checkpoint inhibitor treatment to the onset of arthritis was close to four or five months for those patients. And then interestingly, they took another five to six months for patients to be started on treatment on average based based on the study. So by that time, it seems they had quite active arthritis with high CDI scores. And then they looked at the response to treatment as well as time to progression of uh, underlying malignancy. So that, that was like the main safety concern in the study. And they saw that Uh, patients were given either TNF inhibitor or IL-6. Actually, most of them were on either IL-6 inhibitor alone or methotrexate alone. And of course, there is TNF methotrexate combos and IL-6 methotrexate combinations. Uh, So here they saw that uh, when patients were given methotrexate monotherapy, it took them longer Uh, to respond to treatment patients who received combination of either TNF or IL-6 with methotrexate responded to treatment the fastest and their symptoms were relieved the fastest. But at the same time, they had the shortest time to cancer progression, which is a big concern. So the question is like, where is that perfect balance where we treat sufficiently enough to relieve their symptoms but do not harm the underlying condition, do not make it progress faster or more severely? My question would be like when I looked at the data and how they presented the figures in the study, they put T, like TNF mono, l 6 mono along with the combination patients together. So I would be curious to know if you give, let's say IL-6 inhibitor or TNF inhibitor alone, uh, would they have like longer time to progression or would their response to treatment be good enough to, to consider it as a good alternative? So definitely it like, you know, triggers a lot of questions and a lot of discussions. And I think more tra- clinical trials will be needed to, to study this topic. But I think it's a very interesting presentation. Yes.
1: Well, I mean, I'm biased because a whole lot of uh, my IRA friends from big US centers uh, who did this excellent work, but it's clearly a bit of a complicated relationship that TNF, has in terms of cancer in this context, some some for, some against, and trying to tease apart. Dr Bass, of course, is a world expert as far as that's concerned. Do you think that if you were a patient with a rheumatic immune-related adverse event from checkpoint inhibitor immunotherapy and you had uh, pretty bad um, symptoms up front, but a potentially deadly cancer, do you think you'd go to methotrexate first or to, uh, Infliximab or to man. What do you reckon, Olga? What, what, what would you do for yourself?
4: <laughs> I think it's a very difficult question, and I don't honestly know what I would do. I think methotrexate to me sounds like a good medium. Look where you okay. May may take longer to work. You may not have as good pain relief, but it is indeed safer in terms of uh, cancer safety. So that sounds like a like a good measure. But again. You know, it depends on the severity, you know, like when the person suffers from CV arthritis and they are debilitated, how much, you know, how much pain and suffering can they take?
1: I'm glad you haven't figured it out because I don't think I have either. Anyone else in the group got any advances on that?
2: There's been previous studies that show that patients who have these um, IC-related, immune-related adverse events actually do... Um, have better prognosis, right? So their immune Mm. system is revved up, they kill the cancer, you know, and this is just one study. There's been other studies that shows that IL-6 inhibitors might augment ICI treatments. And so if it were me, and if money was no object, and my insurance would approve everything, I probably would go with tocilizumab, to be honest with you, Mm. (laughs) you (laughs) and minimize the steroids. It's about the steroids too because yeah. high amounts of steroids is going to render the ICI treatment ineffective.
1: I've even heard concept. of some,
0: some protocols that they're actually giving um, immunosuppressants like interleukin-6 up, up front uh, with the immunotherapy. So uh, clearly the oncologists are not quite as worried about it as we are.
1: Well, I think it's a complicated story, but uh, we did see data today from Noha, Noha Abdel-Wahab's uh, team at MD Anderson looking at tocilizumab, in combination with nivolumab and ipilimumab, and ipilimumab in uh, prospectively in that con- in that context and the data looks pretty good but there's something to be said for the immune homeostasis isn't there really trying to hit that to get to that middle bit where you're not pushing too far and back the other way in fact that's a perfect time to segue to orally because you're looking at the other side of the coin aren't you, it
5: Eddie, is, you it is.
1: What's going on there
5: um, and actually, it's not so often that we get a new mechanism of action in RA. And who yeah. else than than Emery to present it today in the light-breaking abstract session? So, I mean, yeah, quite exciting, isn't it? Um, yeah. in, you know, we obviously know about immunotherapy, checkpoint inhibitors, PD-1, but then the question is, what if instead of inhibiting it, we actually activate it and try to restore immunostasis in RA? And some people thought about that um, and they put together this elegant phase 2A placebo control RCT where they look at perizolimab, it's the name of that PD-1 agonist, um, in, a, in, a, in a fairly small sample, it was 100 patients and they were randomized to 1-1, so they had two doses of perizolimab, 700 milligrams for 50 patients, um, 300 milligrams for 25 roughly and then placebo for 25 and so they gave the treatment to patients um, so basically it's an infusion um, uh, and, and they, gave, they gave the treatment to patients um, for um, 12 weeks and the primary outcome was the DAS CRP and the change in DAS CRP from baseline Um, And they also looked at CDI and they were able to show that in both those, basically, there is an improvement, significant improvement um, of these parameters in the treated patients. They also showed that um, for those patients who continued up to week 24, um, because they were getting benefit from it, um, the CDI improvement was actually sustained. So that's quite exciting. And on top of that, there's a couple of things that they highlighted that I think, you know, worse discuss here um, with you guys, because so the first thing was, um, if you look into DAS28 components, what was the most improved was actually swollen joint count, tender joint count, uh, patient global, and CRP was not necessarily um, um, modified. I mean, it was quite heterogeneous. Um, so that's quite interesting. Um, the second thing that was even more interesting, and it also it was a trend and it was not necessarily significant, um, but it, it seemed that, you know, um, patients that had previous exposure to biologic or targeted synthetic DMARCs were actually responding better than those who were bio-naive. I mean, how often do we see a drug that actually, uh, you know, does better in inadequate in inadequate responders to, to biologic? It's a trend. So I guess it would have to be confirmed, you know, in further studies. But that kind of highlights the concept as well that maybe patients that are inadequate responders to biologic, they have a more disrupted immunity somehow, you know, and maybe that helps mostly these patients. I don't know, it's, you know, it's it's early, it's it's too early to say, but that's quite interesting. And I'm really looking forward to see, you know, phase two B, phase three um, studies.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, we certainly could do with more mechanisms of action for those refractory patients. That's exciting. Um, that's, and that'll be interesting to see how that all plays out. Now, of course, the big question in that is, what about this? The what about the cancer question? Given that PD one inhibition is something that we use against a number of malignant diseases, we just talked about. So, what about the flip side? Are you worried orally?
5: Uh, I mean, it's a twenty four week study. So, if you were to observe any cancer event, you probably wouldn't in a such um, a short period of time, right? In terms of side effects, adverse events, they were pretty much comparable um, between groups. There was no specific signal. There was no dose effect either. Uh, but when it comes to cancer, I think it's really hard to say. Um, this being said, um, I'm, you know, it, it it it's been proven in the past, and we have like a lot of examples that the, the, you know, reversing effects doesn't necessarily apply in many, many, uh, you know, diseases. So I think we will have to see, but I wouldn't be worried just now about it.
1: Because we're not worried, particularly worried about bettercept now, although we were when it first came to market, worried a bit about lung cancer. And there's incident cancers, and we know our patients get cancer anyway. So teasing that out is going to take a lot to reassure ourselves, I think. Before we finish up, and I realize we've gone over time, but, you know, I'll set take the chair's prerogative and let's just keep on running for a little bit. I want to go around the group and ask you, this is the last day of a conference with a new format. Either one thing that you really liked about this or one thing that you really hope will change. Let's start at the, let's start at the top of the screen. Catherine, tell us what you really liked or what you'd want to really change from this format.
2: I love the fact that they are upping their game and choosing keynote speakers, because Doctor Varghese. Oh my God! I mean, I'm talking about fangirl here. I've been reading all his books. I'm, you know, such a big fan of of his work. And for them to bring him in and then just, you know, his the way he talks, the way he unravels a story. I mean, you saw it yourself at the keynote speech it's been amazing so thank you acr for bringing great speakers to the conference
1: i've heard a lot of people saying that uh the last couple of days julian tell tell me what did you uh this is your first acr isn't it
0: so yeah so I, my my perspective is different from everyone because um this is clearly the biggest meeting i've ever been to and much bigger than what we have at home and uh, more locally. So, you know, for me, it was an 11 out of 10, just because it's great to meet people, great to have such high quality uh, data and and sessions and education. So uh, for me, I wouldn't have changed anything.
1: Oh, oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Richard, this is not your first meeting. Tell us a little bit. Definitely
3: not. I'm going to do a like and change, which are the same thing, which are the posters. Um, I really like having a virtual poster, having a presentation of it recorded that the virtual attendees can see. But I really dislike there not being a poster hall and the presenters not having the opportunity to present and discuss their posters face to face with experts in the field. Yeah,
1: that, I mean, that's. The post, the post, the physical poster hall floor used to be that hub of activity where you'd get all of your feedback from different people around the world and you'd see friends, make new friends. So you're hearing a lot about that as well. Mm. Olga, what about you?
4: Well, I did like. Um, the, the choice of speakers, I think great speakers this year, so that's definitely a plus. The ability to go back and listen to presentation is amazing. What I did not like is the functionality of the app. I think it could be a little better. Even, let's say, if you wanted to ask a question like online, uh, you had to type it in, in advance because there was a delay between when you type in and then they actually receive it. So, yeah, I think if we could improve the, the technology behind it, that'd be amazing. But all in all, it seems to be working great having this opportunity to attend it virtually.
1: Absolutely. Well, I mean, I think that's a big advantage of the online bit that gives that equity in terms of getting people along, doesn't it? Um, Orally, what do you think?
5: Yes, just before I answer that, I just realized I must be tired. I said it was, um, it was an infusion, but the periozolimab is a subcut. But yeah, I just wanted to mention that. Anyway, um yeah, I I, I, quite, uh, I quite enjoy coming back and, you know, being able to, to catch up with a lot of people I hadn't seen in a while. Um, face-to-face conference is always great for that. I was a bit surprised to see that some of the rooms and some of the, you know, men's sessions were not very well attended face to face. I was a bit surprised about that. I'm not so sure why it is. Uh, but um, and, and the other thing was um, finding directions in a conference center was a, bit, was a bit difficult. You had to walk almost a mile sometimes to get from one to another. But aside from that, I really enjoyed it. <laughs>
1: Well, if it was a smaller conference venue, I think we'd all be disappointed, right? We want the big, we want the big conference centers. We we? Do. And indeed, San Diego next year, it's going to be a big one. So I think we're all looking forward to it. So now's my opportunity to thank everyone that's joined us today and to thank Catherine, Julian, Richard, Olga, and Orally for giving their thoughts today. Thank you so much for tuning in and thank you, everyone. Have a good night.
3: Thank you. Good
2: night.